Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is the Aranex Podcast, a show bringing you the news and opinions of the changing shape of the shipping ocean and maritime space. I'm Craig Eason, editor and owner of Fathom World, a website and regular newsletter for anyone who wants to know what's going on on the seas. In this episode of the podcast, we have... This is a idea uh, that I got in uh, high school when I was arguing with my teacher. I told him we would uh, go and use the wind again in sailing. And he said it was the most, it was just a hilarious uh, we had so much oil that we don't have to use the wind again. An Icelandic startup with a containerized wind turbine for ships. It's part of a 9.2 million euro funded project to see how its system, photovoltaic cells and wind assist technologies, can be combined to give ships a chance to reduce fuel use and emissions. There's the story of the unfortunate dirty bottoms. There's been at least five cruise ships that have been turned away from New Zealand and Australia due to biofouling on the hulls. I wanted to hear if this could be a sign that authorities are now seeing hull fouling as the next huge environmental and biodiversity challenge in the coastal waters. I think that the first thing we're going to see now is that port is going to treat this very local, uh, one by one basis. But I totally agree that we need international collaboration involving port authorities uh, and relevant water stakeholders in order to solve it. And also we go into space. Starlink has been signing reseller deals left and right in recent months as it takes a bold move into the shipping industry despite its coverage being far less than global. But first... Let's go to Las Vegas. Let's go to the annual Consumer Electronics Show, or CES. It's here that we often hear about Apple, Google, Sony, Microsoft, car makers pushing EVs and fuel cell mobility. But amongst them are the big South Korean cables, and in particular, Hyundai. But not only its modern car aspirations, but also its shipbuilding news through HD Hyundai. Explores endless possibilities in the ocean. Even it's difficult to pick out just one or two bits of the HJI Hyundai hour-long series of high-level talks, dreams, and visions of the future. But before I try and do that, I just wanted to mention one thing quickly. Perhaps those in shipping that complain about the lack of visibility of our industry, how we think shipping's generally not seen by the rest of the world or or even policymakers, perhaps they should look at what HD Hyundai has done here. It's not invested all its marketing and PR machine to do just a press event and highlight its ambitions at the likes of Core Marine, Marintech, SMM or Nor Shipping. No, it's gone to a giant consumer show in Las Vegas with its message. It went there and talked about fuel systems, about new ships to carry new cargoes. They had staff on stage talking about the new energy scenarios, about wind assist technologies, nuclear power, ammonia and methanol, about electrification and fuel cells, about digitalization, data demands and connectivity. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm welcome to the president and CEO of HD Hyundai. Kisan Jung. Hello and welcome to CES 2023. 
So I'm going to have to be a bit picky here and focus on a couple of things I picked up from their presence at CES. Not that I was there, of course. First, there is the fact that HD Hyundai has spread its giant conglomerate net wide, not just within the shipbuilding and new ships of new cargoes, but also, as I said, digital tools and ocean technologies. Safe and secure transportation of renewable energy sources will become possible, and we're connecting those smart ships with ocean-wise our new vision for a truly global and truly intelligent network platform. Here we are building on our existing suite of smart ship solutions to achieve a real optimization of shipping all over the world. Please welcome to the stage CTO and Senior EVP of Advanced Research Center Korea Shipbuilding and Offshore Engineering, Sungjun Kim. Thank you, Gison. Our vision for future ocean mobility is deeply rooted in our commitment. Dual fuel engine for hydrogen or ammonia, for instance, will play an important bridging role until our ships can run 100% carbon-free. At the same time, electrification is an accelerating trend, which will see about 30% of small and mid-sized ships going electric by 2030. Electric vessels are great, not just for their carbon reduction advantages, but also for more responsible control, greater flexibility in system design, low noise, and low vibration. So HD Hyundai hopes to put its mark on all the possible fuel pathways the industry is exploring, whether it be hydrogen, ammonia, electrification, or any of them. And within that fuel and power mix, there's also nuclear power, not just for power generation, for fuel propulsion. Another exciting possibility is small modular reactors. These next generation nuclear fission reactors are only one-sixth the size of conventional nuclear power plants, small enough to go on our ships and more secure with enhanced safety features. And because they are deployed as prefabricated modular units, SMRs are simpler to build, more affordable, and offer greater flexibility. We believe HD Hyundai has much to offer, having already demonstrated our capabilities with ITER, the largest ever nuclear fusion reactor project. We developed vacuum vessels for containing plasma at 150 million degrees Celsius 10 times hotter than the sun's core, a mission of truly historic significance which we are successfully delivering. So, with a proven ultra-precision engineering capability, we continue to explore the potential of SMRs as an efficient and reliable source of energy for our ships. We can also use them on our high-flop platforms as part of ocean energy clusters that will turn our oceans into new spaces for sustainable energy production. That's Yuri Kim, Senior Researcher, Hydrogen and Fuel Cell Laboratories at KSAOE, talking about how nuclear power in the ocean can be a way not only to power ships, but also to generate hydrogen. Now, the group also laid out the corporate dream that includes seemingly taking control of the digital shipping space, 
With OceanWise, HJ Hyundai's digital intentions seem to know no bounds. Manager of Hyundai Global Service, John Beck. Analytics, giving us a more holistic set of maritime data. Our ISS Smartship platform has been operational since 2019, collecting tons of data from hundreds of ships with hundreds more to come. It uses navigational and operational data to optimize performance for higher efficiency and safer journeys. Today, we are introducing ISS 2.0, integrating AIS data from every ship operating worldwide in real time along with sea conditions and satellite images. We are also adding our proprietary data gathered over decades about global shipping routes and major ports. With advanced machine learning, we can process and analyze this vast amount of data to gain smarter visibility of the global maritime ecosystem. This lets us optimize journeys using AI algorithms and real-time information on what's happening en route. And if there's a problem at the port, we can adjust the course rather than sitting in the queue, thereby saving fuel. So HC Hyundai laid out a whole range of dreams and plans, making the CES crowd think that it and it alone can decarbonize and harness the oceans. It was the kind of extravagance and storytelling one expects from Las Vegas, but it was certainly one way for the future of shipping to be seen by more than shipping people with their built-in doubts and economic focuses and needs. But now there's another company looking to build great success in shipping and this one is not an incumbent shipbuilder with the digital and ocean industry dreams. It's Elon Musk's SpaceX and in particular the Starlink constellation of satellites. We've all heard of Starlink, it's this extravagant and likely to be realised plan to put up about 12,000 and some say over 40,000 low earth orbit small satellites into space to give the whole world affordable broadband access. Now, the promise is of 350 megabits, and it's already got consumer sales running in North America and Europe. But in recent weeks, I've noticed a growing number of press releases from communication and connectivity outfits saying how they've become Starlink resellers. It's the like of Toto Theo, Speedcast, Marlink, Castor and others now selling Starlink packages along with those from the likes of Inmarsat, Iridium and the regular VSAT crowd. This is potentially good news and I wanted to know what it though means, especially as there's been some concerns about the lack of global even deep sea coverage of the Starlink network and also whether capacity is holding up given its popularity with the landside consumers. Fala Consultancy is a UK-based satellite intelligence company watching the satellite business trends and I spoke to researcher Alicia Sims about this move to bring in resellers to find shipping customers. The strategy of Starlink is really interesting the way it changed. So they went from direct to market to straight to these resellers. So recently they went with Barlink and interestingly Castor Marine first. And then recently in this past week, they've gone with Navarino and IEC Telecom. I think the impact of that is going to be quite huge in a way. I think it's going to create waves because they've kind of gone for, or Marlink and Navarino are huge players in the market. So I think going through these resellers that already have a huge presence within the maritime connectivity market, I think that's going to open their customer base quite 
significantly. Um, so I think due to them changing the strategy, due to them doing this, I think there's going to be a wider impact. Well, one of the things that we, we've seen is a large number of satellites being launched by Starlink, over 3,000 satellites, but as yet it still doesn't have global coverage. Is this impacting its strategy? What can you tell me a little bit about its its plans here with the number of satellites and what it's then going to be able to offer to the uh, to the maritime industry because shipping is global it wants to see global coverage and surely with a with a regional or limited coverage there's only so much that starlink can offer at the moment there is drawbacks to starlink at the moment there's been a lot of complaints about their um, capacity not being high enough so it's recently reduced to t- 10 to 20 megabytes per second just because there's kind of too much demand on the system so this is something they're working on. So SpaceX has recently had permission to launch another 7,500 satellites just so they can improve their capacity, improve their coverage. So I think for them to grow and impact the market as much as they could do, they really need to work on this capacity issue. And if they do that, then there'll be a huge significant change. But obviously it is one of the drawbacks of the growth. You're listening to the Aranax podcast with news, stories and voices about the changing shape of the shipping and ocean economies. Go to Fathom World to find out more and don't forget to sign up for the newsletter. Now, let's talk about the wind. Putting a small wind turbine in a small boat is not new. Go around any yacht club and you'll likely see these small propeller-like systems, enough to help yachters recharge radio and other batteries on board. So why not couple that with wind assist wing sails, photovoltaic systems too, and vastly enlarge the technology and try to see how it'll work on cargo vessels, a bulker perhaps, or a container ship. The EU-funded Whisper project is going to try and just do that. There's 14 companies in the consortium for this four-year project and it's won 9.2 million euros of funding. The three particular technologies are wing sails from Aero in France, that's the company putting the sails on the canopy, that's the vessel destined to shuttle the Ariane rocket parts across the Atlantic, and Italian photovoltaic outfit Soliban. And from Iceland, a startup called Sidewind, which has taken the idea of a wind turbine, enlarged it, put it on its side, and designed it to go into a recycled 40-foot container so it can be lowered on and off bulk vessels and container ships to generate electricity that could be fed into a vessel's electricity system, thus reducing engine load demands. Sidewind is the husband and wife team, Maria Thrastotte and Oscar Svavason. We take this uh, a damaged container and we recycle the container by taking the sides off the container and you reuse it. Then we inside we put souvenirs with turbine made from uh, recycled plastic from France and uh, then we just put it as a top layer and uh, you get a free energy. So you're using the, the idea is then this containerized turbine yeah. will generate electricity, yeah. you collect the electricity and it feeds into a ship's system you can you can put it in a, a battery pack uh, uh, in the ship and uh, the best solution is 
to use it straight away to lower the load of the main engine. But uh, in, in the hardware, you can put it in a battery because maybe after five or 10 years, the rule is you will get on uh, electricity from hardware or to hardware. So you better collect the, the, the energy. Then. You've joined the Whisper project. Can yes. you tell me a little bit about what you are bringing into the Whisper project and what the Whisper project especially is going to help you achieve? So the Whisper project is a consortium of 14 uh, companies that will work together with three solutions, uh, uh, a sail and our solution, Sidewind, and uh, uh, solar panels for ships. And we will test these three solutions together and see how much uh, we can uh, save in energy. And this will take, uh, this will uh, be the next four years, uh, this project. And we will just uh, uh, then have uh, uh, developed our robust solution that will be for extreme uh, environment at sea to, yeah, just to lower energy consumption. How do you see this actually being used on the ships? It's just, have you thought through the sort of the practicalities of how a containerized turbine or a number, you know, a hundred, however many you envisage on a large uh, vessel can actually be used? They have to be loaded, discharged from the ship occasionally, depending on the cargo operations and the type of ship. They need to be connected um, and disconnected from um, the electric system. Have you have you thought through that yet, or is this some of the things that you're hoping to realise through the Whisper project? Yeah, in this Whisper project, we will learn a lot. But sixty uh, percent of the cargo ships are not uh, container ships. They are row ships and uh, all sorts of uh, bulk ships. So you don't have to move this uh, uh, wind turbines in, on the, these ships, but uh, we have it in a container because then you can use the infrastructure of the ports and harbors. So it can, it's, it's no problem, but uh, it takes a little bit of time, but uh, we just have to calculate how much it would will cost. And, and finally, let's go back to the beginning, right back 18 years or, or so, however many years, where did the idea come from? And how long have you had to wait for it to be realized? Yes, uh, this is a idea when, uh, that I got in uh, high school when I was arguing with my teacher. I told him we would uh, go and use the wind again in sailing. And he said it was the most, it was just a hilarious. Uh, uh, we had so much oil that we don't have to use the wind again. Uh, but. Uh, it was very expensive to, to, to produce wind 30 years ago. Now, today, it cost one third of the amount that cost it 30 years ago. Uh, but in the future, it will maybe after 10 years, it will cost maybe one third of what it cost today. But it's always getting cheaper to, uh, to use the wind for energy. Maria Thrasdotter and Oscar Svarvesen, who founded Sidewind, a neat and mobile way to generate kilowatts of power using a containerized wind turbine, having been told by a school teacher it'd never work. 
Now, when I saw this project had won over €9 million Euros from the EU Horizon programme, I thought it was possibly the largest amount ever awarded to a wind assist project. What I do know is that there's already about 25 or so vessels afloat, many more coming soon, that demonstrate the potential of wind power or wind assist propulsion to reduce fuel use. And shipping being shipping, the more proof there is a technology works, the more likely operators and owners will begin to take note. I asked Gavin Allwright at the International Windship Association what this means. This, along with a number of other projects that have uh, been coming through the pipeline from the EU Horizon project and other other projects, really does show that the EU is stepping up and putting putting the money into the projects that are looking not just at wind propulsion, but the integration of direct energy sources, so solar, electrical generation through turbines, and direct wind propulsion technologies. So I think we've seen it on a policy level uh, that there's an increasing understanding and appreciation of what wind propulsion can bring to the table. Um, And it's available today. And the technology is pretty much a no regret technology. But also, you know, um, when, when we're seeing projects like this coming through quite a competitive horizon um, process means that the value is being really appreciated. So we're probably looking at only a few percent of projects getting through. And when we have wind propulsion and other direct renewable energy um, solutions coming to the top of that, I think that shows the appreciation of, of, of these in within the horizon process, but also within the wider EU framework as well. Gavin Allwright, Secretary General at the International Windship Association, and you can read more about this project on the Fathom World website. It's summer in the Southern Hemisphere, you probably know that. You also probably know that most of us want to take our holidays in our summers, and what better way to do so than to take a cruise? Taking in many sights, watching the ocean go by, jumping ashore now and then, only sometimes not. Sometimes stuck aboard while the cruise ship gets a clean. In the past few weeks, I've read of up to five cruise ships that have been turned away from ports in New Zealand and Australia. This has led to disgruntled passengers and promises in some cases of compensation to keep them happy as port stops and longed-for excursions got cancelled. These ships have not been turned away from anything wrong inside the ships this time. It's not directly because of Covid, but what's going wrong under them, on the hulls. Biofouling is rapidly being seen as a key vector for invasive species, and ports are increasingly concerned about the risks of letting ships into their waters where invasive weeds, crabs, larvae of many species and such can detach and start colonising. We all know how bad the problem can be. We've seen how the industry tried to resolve the problem with ballast water. But Ballast Water now has an international convention to try and reduce the risks. While there's only international guidance on invasive species and efforts to collate best practices through projects such as the IMO's Glow Fouling Partnerships. But it seems to me that five cruise ships back in service after lockdowns and travel bans hit the cruise ship companies hard is telling us something about how authorities are taking biodiversity risks much more seriously. This fouling may have been the result of them being laid up for a year or longer during the pandemic, but if the situation worsens it will be another blow for the cruise sector. 
For stories about the cruise ships also comes just weeks after nations attended COP15 on biodiversity in Montreal and agreed the Global Biodiversity Framework with its four overarching global goals to halt human-induced extinctions and biodiversity threats. The Convention on Biological Diversity lists invasive species as direct drivers of biodiversity loss. I talked to Tor Osterwald at EcoSubsea. Osterwald has been extremely outspoken about the need for global regulations and I asked him about these trends and if he thinks the industry should be worried. The last vessel I saw was cleaned 27 kilometres outside the coast of Australia. But we have incidents like the, the Marigold. That was the, that was the first ship that was found to, to have to leave the country of New Zealand was supposed to stay in Tauranga for nine days. And they said that, okay, we'll come back clean, New Zealand, but we'll go to Fiji and clean. And in that instance, uh, the media got in touch with the government of Fiji and they replied that this dirty vessel is not coming into our waters either. For, and they asked why, and they said for the same reasons as New Zealand. So I think that we're going to see a um, growing challenge, which is close to a catch-22, where more and more ports are going to ask these questions about biodiversity and the status of your hull. But uh, there's going to be more and more challenges and bigger and bigger deviation for ships to actually to get this service done. Otherwise, it would need to happen in open waters with unsafe uh, methods that we've seen uh, happening many times over the last years. So when you say in open waters, well away from the coast where the risks of an invasion of some species is considered to be a lot lower, but presumably using divers and not robotic systems like yours. Yeah, so you, you're doubling the stakes, right? Because number one, it's in international waters just because no one can say you're not allowed to. But when you're then putting a small dive boat, and we know all the accident that's happened when hull cleaning has been performed by divers inside a shelter port, when you put that diving boat out in, in open waters, you also, also, of course, increase as many folds the, the safety issues involved. What do you think is going to be the, the, the way that this is going to be kind of resolved? I know that the New Zealand cruise industry has begun talks with the with the um, New Zealand authorities to try and discuss this, but I, I see it that the pandemic has created a problem for the for the cruise ship operators who are keen to get their vessels back in service, keen to offer cruise um, itineraries for passengers, keen to get to places like New Zealand, particularly now during the New Zealand summer, to actually you know offer those voyages that uh, passengers want. But maybe they haven't had the opportunity to go through a thorough hull cleaning. Is this, are these five cruise ships that we've heard about over the last couple of weeks, is this just the tip of the iceberg? Yes, I think so. Unfortunately, I think this is the start of a new era when it comes to dealing with biofouling. Uh, historically, we've been dealing with biofouling just because of a, uh, climate reasons to, to save CO2 and basically to save fuel. But what we are seeing now is that is the other side of the coin that is playing a much bigger role, and that is biodiversity. And this has been for long talked about that we'll talk about climate first, but biodiversity challenges is the single biggest threat to the humankind. So that's a bigger wave that's going to come. And that is what we are seeing now in, 
uh, focus shifting in, in shipping. And I think it's just the start. Uh, I anticipate that it's going to be a little bit like in the start of COVID. Uh, it was uh, a few countries starting to talk about uh, that you had to show your COVID passport. But as soon as someone has pointed at a problem, something that a disease that can spread, uh, it very soon happens that the next neighboring country is also going to ask about the same COVID passport. And I think that that's going to mainly focus in a, in a few new changes to the shipping industry. Uh, for one, it's going to be bring biodiversity up as a, as a, a red flag that we need to deal with uh, in total. Uh, but uh, number two, it's going to manifold uh, both the investments and the things that we need to do both to prohibit biofouling from growing and keeping control of it uh, globally. And in in terms of the way that to, to, to respond to this, you and I were at the Glow Fouling event in October last year, and there was a lot of discussion around the invasive species risks, both to aquaculture, to offshore energy, as, as well as other other areas, as well as the environmental. It, it strikes me that this is a such a multifaceted problem that simple guidelines which are being evolved at the IMO, for example, are really not going to be enough because it needs to be a lot more of a holistic response to this and a lot more determined response, which will then encourage the ports to have a much more unified approach to how they're going to deal with biofouling. Yeah, I think it was a very exciting forum, the R&D forum at the IMO in, in October. And I think what it clearly showed us that, like you say, it hits many sectors. Uh, we've seen uh, examples where we've taken up 78 tons of a full Norwegian fauna of oil rig before that was sailing to uh, scarce waters outside Newfoundland. We see it in aquaculture here in Norway, where sea vomit hitchhiking on a vessel from Japan is, is taking over fishing nets. And of course, we see it for shipping. So I think the IMO guidelines will play a very important role, but more like setting a path, setting a direction that we need to work on it. But I think the real decision maker in this all, and particularly for the shipping industry, but also for any other asset meeting a coast, is going to be the local ports. And the reason for this is that when it comes to ballast, for example, it is an international biodiversity challenge. We need rules coming from the top down. But in this instance, even though we make regional, international, national guidelines, it will be each individual local port who would need to look at this from two sides, not only from biodiversity aspect, but also from a chemical aspect. Because we all know that in the, in the shipping industry, some 90% of, of uh, the things that's going to fight biofouling is anti-fouling coatings. And for the local ports, it's not only important to regulate that there is less non-native biodiversity coming into your port, but also that there is no heavy metals and microplastic released in. So I think that the first thing we're going to see now is that port is going to treat this very local, uh, one by one basis, 
But I totally agree that we need international collaboration involving port authorities uh, and relevant water stakeholders in order to solve it, just because of the double complexity of this coin. Torres Devold from EcoSubsea in Norway on the growing biodiversity concerns. Well, that's it for me this week. I'll be back in a fortnight with another episode. But in the meantime, if you want more on all of these stories and also want to know how the UK nuclear power for shipping programme is developing, how shipping needs to reduce its energy consumption by over six exajoules and how an organisation has developed software to help regulators determine the optimal level of regulations with the minimum impact on global trade, then log on to the Fathom World website. You can also sign up for our fortnightly letter too and of course shout about this podcast and all of our work to your colleagues and industry friends. I'd love it if you did and be ever so grateful. It's been fun putting this together. I'm Craig Eason and goodbye for now.